0: This is a podcast from 3 R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.
1: Like sort of understate, no one. This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave
2: way to a run for survival.
3: You are listening to
4: Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse 3RR's weekly analysis of the global system's paralysis. Tonight on GTA, we will once again be covering the ever more confusing state of economics with Satyajit Das, a former banker with over 35 years' experience in financial markets and an expert on the complex financial instruments at the heart of the global financial system and its ongoing dose of the staggers. As always, co-conspirator... The man with the beautiful baritone, Potterer in the physical and spiritual garden. Adam Grubb.
0: <laughs> when I hear the word spiritual, I reach for my revolver. So... Adam <laughs> <laughs> I do have a bit of a baritone, but that's just because uh, I have a cold.
4: It's quite lovely.
0: Thanks. Mm. Did you did you have that experience as a teenager where you thought your voice might have broken,
4: but it was just <laughs> you had the flu? Yeah, and then
0: you're back to Oh it's damn, it's my voice broke.
4: <coughs> I <felt so> was <laughs> oh dear in the rotating chair direct from her first day back from maternity leave back into the workforce complete with a lunchtime beer and a slice of cake and complete sentences and thoughts is a lovely kate dundas hello how was that
2: oh yeah it was good going back to work i thoroughly enjoyed it actually you know day one i've just at the moment got visions of adam tending to his spiritual garden
4: (laughs) i think it's lovely (laughs) In my mind, tending <laughs> as, as one who has a beard that is groomed, like tending. When well, I think of tending, I often think of follicles.
2: <laughs> yeah, follicles. Yeah. it's follicle garden.
0: <laughs> did you? Um, I did go to Mind Body Spirit Festival once. Did Our, you? The business had like a free pass to set up a garden there, and oh, um, nice. yeah, we had a sort of token purple kale which oh, uh, yeah. this guy came up who could apparently read the vibrations off plants and he, he started talking to it through the palm of his hand. Yeah, right.
4: Yeah. What did it <laughs> So I did have a spiritual garden once. What did that kale say? <laughs> Get away from the hipster. screamed. Hip's yeah. <laughs> As always, the man who puts it all together and holds it there, the two-wheeled one, Jed McCartney. Hey Bushy, hello
1: everyone. How you doing? I'm alright, I'm alright. We had uh, the Ronda on the yeah, Ronda. weekend, the Ronda van Velanderen, and uh, the, the world champ broke the hoodoo. Normally there's a bit of a hoodoo around the um, the world championship jersey, and uh, he won, so Peter Sagan won that race. And this Sunday um, is the hell of the north at Paris-Roubaix, so 200 and something <laughs> kilometres of... Um, Racing across about 30 sectors of cobblestones. So oh, that's the Melbourne. Oh, and Melbourne. No, 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 no that's the Melbourne oh. Roubaix, that's in June. Oh. So he's uh, in the Hell of the North, so Yeah, there. registrations are open this weekend for Melbourne Roubaix. Mm. Hell of the North in Paris, well, it goes from, uh, yeah, ah. in France, almost Paris, outskirts uh-huh. of Paris. Yeah, so that's um, a real
4: hard man's race, that one. Uh, okay, not those softies that like ride the entire countryside in the tour. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. right. <laughs> Marvelous. Uh, each week we kick off the show and we chat to each other about what we've been looking at in a section called "What caught my eye" and "What caught your eyes." I think Adam, you were going to go first. When you're not, uh, I can do. I can do. Please, I that lovely looking, voice.
0: Well, we have a bit of a financially themed show with uh, dust tonight, and so I turned my eyes to the pages of Bloomberg. Uh, which is a fairly sort of um, mainstream Wall Street-friendly outlet for financial news. So it was interesting to see there that uh, a story regarding Australia was not an upbeat one. It's called, As China Turns to Consumers, Australia Confronts the End of Iron Age. And it quotes our central bank governor, Glenn Stevens, who acknowledged last week that it's impossible to know how China's transition, I think that means to a sort of more internal consumer-based economy, will unfold given nothing on this scale has been tried before. And it signals elevated risks ahead for the developed world's most China-dependent economy, that being us in Australia. And it... A lot of the article talks about how, well, with China, um, it, its own internal building and all—you know—they've been making these like huge cities that no one's ever going to live in, mm. suburbs and factories that are never going to get used, and they're totally an overshoot. And so, their demand for for iron, which is the third largest commodity in the world after oil and gas, yeah, and where one of the main exporters and the main one to China um, has fallen off a cliff. And prices have dropped by three quarters in the last five years. And to deal with that, the um, the central bank has dropped interest rates and added to the housing bubble. (laughs) Uh, So Jeremy Lawson, the chief economist at Standard Life Investments, is quoted as saying, that is the issue. What drives growth? Uh, So he, he previously worked at the central bank. Um, given reduced financial space and a can and a constrained household sector, Australia is particularly vulnerable to the next global downturn. So we sort of scraped by last time in the yep. GFC because of China booming, but this time even places like Bloomberg, you know, it's all, its its pretty mainstream news now. At this mm. time, it's a bit spookier for—we're we're actually in the crosshairs. Yep. So it'd be interesting to hear what Das has to say about that later.
4: Oh. Indeed, <laughs> and as Kate reaches for a hammer. <laughs> It's not all bad. I mean, good things happen in recessions. Good things do. and yeah. you know, it's it's Bad like, things too, but... Like bad things people happen. drink
2: beer in recessions. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, One yeah. of the
4: things we yeah. should probably... We do attempt to touch on, I think, in this show is... Uh, and Samuel Alexander says this, all the crisis is opportunity. I mean, yeah, absolutely. historically... People only
2: change... When there's crisis. Mm.
4: And actually, that said, had Australia taken a bit of a harder hit in the ass, had we last time taken more of a harder hit in the ass, there probably wouldn't have been such a build-up of complacency. We haven't had a recession in Australia for over two decades. Mm. And I don't a quarter of a century. quarter of a century. And I don't think that uh, any... does any developed nation had that run? I doubt it. I yeah, doubt but it. but look
2: at the UK. Everyone's just back to normal. It's mm. like, oh, there was a recession, and now... Never mind. We'll just yeah. be the same. Mm. So... Daft. Yeah.
4: Go for it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, what caught my eye is an article from it was on Medium dot com, and it's called "What Happens When Corruption Is Systemic" uh, by Joe Brewer. So. He talks about how the human mind evolved to deal with singular threats, so things like a lion jumping out of the bushes or a wild fire spreading through the forest. And we give give cognitive preference to harms that are concrete, immediate and commonplace in our everyday lives. And a consequence of this natural bias towards the individual and familiar is that we are often blind to systemic causation. And then he goes on to talk about the Panama Papers. So over the weekend, this information was released uh, showing exactly who, how and when this great big network of all these people stole and hoarded money. And he mentions how our minds can easily think about, you know, Vladimir Putin embezzling billions of dollars. Um, or the Prime Minister of Iceland which made me feel sad, I thought Iceland was a good place (laughs) (laughs) stealing cash from public coffers but what we find it much more difficult to visualise is this system of everything that needs to be in place for this to happen. Mm. So the system of shell companies, accounting tools trade regimes, tax havens, havens, legislative changes and all of that stuff that needs to be the architecture of this corruption that needs to be there um, for all of this embezzlement and nasty stuff to be happening. Um, So he talks also about how the media is quite likely to frame this Panama Papers event as a few bad apples using legal financial instruments. But he would like to offer an alternative that keeps our mental eye on the ball. And what really matters is the architecture of wealth extraction. So this this background that needs to have been built up and has been systemically built up in every country around the world.
4: The framing, the
2: footing. The framing and the footing. Hmm. So he goes on to say, it's, no, no, this isn't an accident. There's all this history of colonialism and slavery. And what that's brought us is the International Monetary Fund and the World Black World Bank. And uh, now we are seeing... Um, things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is only going to boost this architecture of corruption. Um, However, there is a solution to this mess. (laughs) Um, So he he talks about how when corrupt individuals get away with things, then people who might not happen to be corrupt but might be influenced by those corrupt people um, become greedy and people go along with this social social norm of corruption. And people defect from being good citizens. So how do we get away with this or how do we change this, this countervailing system? Um, Apparently it's all about punishment. Which uh, Bush is quite excited about because he's got many pitchforks, pitchforks for, for prodding, pitchforks. prodding naughty putins. Yeah, well, Vladimir, are going right to be medieval poked history. With always pitchfork. had a
4: pitchfork next to a flame <laughs> torch guy.
2: Yes.
0: So what you're saying is, if punishments are there, the people that want to be good can be good sort of thing
2: the people who are being bad if they are punished then it doesn't become a social norm because they don't get away with it so then people don't copy their badness and you don't get this runaway causal effect of um, everyone being bad because it's normal it's normal apparently for Vladimir Putin to be very corrupt Um, so if we're able to punish bad deeds then it will encourage other greedy people not to go along with what will not be a social norm. <laughs> that makes any sense yeah, yeah. At all? It does make sense.
0: And that's exactly what didn't happen in the <laughs> global financial crisis.
2: Yeah, because it became normal.
0: Yeah. To people, be so people got, naughty. People got, like, raises.
4: Or, you know, they got... The put Promotions the, and... Obama and administration. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Tucked away out of harm's way. Well... um <laughs> bringing it home, something (laughs) slightly cheery. Um, I have a book that I've been enjoying. Uh, We read some pretty heavy books in preparation for this show sometimes. So every now and then I break away and I read books with titles such as Norwegian Wood, Chopping, Stacking and Drying Wood, The Scandinavian Way. And I was cruising through this and there was a lovely little part in here where they talked about, you know, your stack of firewood doesn't fluctuate up and down with shifting economies. It's there and it's reliable. I mean, it does incrementally drop away as you burn it through the winter. But it's as as steady as she goes. There's a lovely little thing here. Stacking is an aesthetic and a practical challenge, so much so that in the late 19th century, in the heavily forested state of Maine, young American women considering a potential husband were advised first to consult a piece of folksy wisdom that revealed the young man's character based on the way he stacked his wood. In all Scandinavia, it is also common wisdom that you can tell a lot about a person from his woodpile. For those looking to marry, the following list may be used as a rule of thumb, and this is great. Upright and solid piles are an upright and solid man. A low pile is a cautious man. He could be shy or he could be weak. Yeah. Um, an unusual shape means he's free-thinking, an open spirit. Again, the construction may be weak, though. A flamboyant pile, widely invisible, means he's possibly extroverted and possibly a bluffer. It goes on and on. A wildly... On. Invisible pile? <laughs> so a flamboyant pile, widely visible. Widely visible. Sorry. Yeah. Do it's, you like my like, wood how pile? How do you do that? Yeah, that's yeah. A, I'd, I'd, I'd be going for that guy, the guy who yeah, yeah. can make shit this <laughs> That's right. It does go on. So, you know, a lot of wood means a man of foresight who is loyal, but not much wood will mean a life lived from hand to mouth. And it goes on and it goes on at the bottom. It says, no wood pile, no husband. Oh. Uh um so evidently i'm quite a catch but that got me thinking because we are talking about economics today and can, can i just say i was gripping the desk waiting for you to make a bad pun and you didn't do it
0: oh you you did bad not make, it wasn't crass crass <laughs> in any way and i just want to thank you man
2: oh it's that cool,
4: man. Was, was great to get through that it's pleasure <laughs> um
2: that's a really nice book isn't
4: it it does look good doesn't it yeah maybe put a picture of that on our page but um it is a thing. I think uh, Holmgren might have mentioned that once, that you know, true wealth can be measured in a pile of firewood. It's a little um, bit
2: sexist, though, isn't it? Let's it's be very
4: sexist, but I'm getting to that. Yeah, so I was discussing this book with my good friend Lindsay, yeah. who um, currently is a single lady, and I said to her, you know, what do you think of this kind of book? And she said, well, look, if I'm going out with a guy, he has to be at least better and than I am with a chainsaw, and better than I am at stacking wood. That's a prerequisite. She actually went as far as to say that if she found herself on a speed-dating night, she wouldn't even say anything to the guy. She would simply put down a still or a husky, that's a chainsaw brand, on the table and say, start it, <laughs> find the primer, well, mix some too. But, t- but t-
2: she t- might be missing out on a wealth of really nice men who can't use a chainsaw.
4: Well, I got into, Well, this is what I'm sort of leading to, is what I wanted to discuss, because, you know, not everyone in the world has, you know, like dreams of money in the Ferrari and everything that we were taught to love growing up in the 80s, you know, go for someone with... But, you know, someone who's very practical. Like, in the case of your lovely partner, Dan, he's tall and he's handsome and he <laughs> brews beer, for fuck's sake. He
2: also has a very nice woodpile. Does he? I might judge him. Can I judge him yeah, yeah. from the description? We
4: should, um... Yes, definitely. But, uh, you know... what. There's some very, very trivial and um, somewhat pedantic things that people see in others sometimes. Oh, you know, I'll eat. Okay, I'm about to get um, kicked out of the house. But I will say that my lovely partner, Sammy, admitted that she once went out on a date with a guy because he had an MG. (laughs) All
2: right? That's fine, Sam. And that said,
4: when her and I first got together, there was some funny little things that I noticed. Not only was she gorgeous and has wonderful personality, but she was a really big fan of the Pixies and had a 63 Volkswagen. So those were some kind of cool things. Yeah, I was 24 at the time and that mattered. Um, we've still got that Volkswagen. It's rotting lovely in the backyard. But uh, 116 will show you what sort of firewood stacker Dan is. as um, so we, we talk about okay. ourselves. Adam, you've got, some wonder- you've got that lovely baritone voice. You're a wonderful catch. But, you know, what do you think of this discussion? Or are you just jumping out of it wholesale?
0: Uh, well, I live in a block in Brunswick where burning wood isn't um, the best for air quality, True. unless you have a rocket stove. Yeah, was it? Were you trying to give me a segue because yeah. I'm doing a workshop about it on the weekend?
4: Oh, look out! <laughs> Go on. Um,
0: well, that's a. I'll mention it at the end of the show.
1: Indeedy, indeedy, Jeff. What about the man you miss out on who uses one of those beautiful axes yeah. instead of a? Smelly old chainsaw.
4: Well, you got to you got to get it to log size before you can split it with the lovely old axe. That in that book actually has an entire chapter about axes and axe shapes and axes. I am a target market for niche interest books, Jed McCartney. I have noticed. Yeah. Kate, you've had a second <laughs> to glimpse down there.
2: So I think Dan is a lot of wood, which is a man of foresight and loyal. But I have to say I have my own wood pile and it's everything in a pile on the ground. And that's ignorance, decadence, laziness, drunkenness and possibly all of these. <laughs> I think <laughs> Dan's got a really good catch. <laughs>
0: You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 R. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on 3 R, and on the line from Sydney, I believe, we have Sachajit Das, who is a former banker and consultant with over 35 years' experience in the financial markets. He's an expert on the complex financial instruments at the heart of the global financial crisis. A crisis which he anticipated uh, as early as 2006. He features in the 2010 Oscar-winning documentary Inside Job. His books include Extreme Money and the recent Banquet of Consequences. In 2014, Bloomberg Bloomberg nominated him as one of the 50 most influential financial thinkers in the world. And Max Kaiser, the TV commentator, calls him the best writer of financial books in the world. Welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, Das. Oh, no, we can't... Have we? Can we hear him? Is he on the line?
4: We can go go to a phone. Can you
2: hear me now?
0: Yes. Oh, we can hear you now. Now, I know you're an expert in many complicated financial instruments, but what would be really nice is to set the scene a bit big picture. And I think it's kind of confusing for a lot of us when we think of the economy being something where it's made of factories and mines and farms, shops, schools and hospitals, you know, all the things that we see around us and people that actually do stuff and has some inherent value or at least it's kind of tangible. On the other hand, there's this whole other economy which is much harder to visualize and that's a financial economy of bankers and traders and people who seem to be getting much richer than the people that are doing the tangible stuff. Now, can you give us an idea of just how big this financial world is and what does it actually contribute to? Well, you're so
3: yesterday. You actually want to make real things. just absurd, really. It's absurd. Let me tell you about the world that used to be and the world that is. What you're talking about is a real world where people made things, bought things, And money was essentially a lubricant. So if people wanted to make a factory, they needed to borrow some money, which is very, very logical. And people wanted to save for a house or their children's education or their retirement, they save money. So banks just took the money, which was deposited with them, lent it to the other guy. Hey, presto, that was fine. And there were some other functions as well. You know, we had to pay people. So you had to move the money through the banking system. And also there were simple things like if somebody was, for instance, buying goods from overseas, and the currencies fluctuated, they may want to actually buy some insurance against those fluctuations. When I went to work in banking in 1977, in fact, the 7th of March 1977, that's what banking was, and it was highly regulated. But something happened in the last 30, 35 years. And it was part of the deregulation of banking, part of Actually, I suppose, at a deeper level, embracing markets, whatever these things are, free markets. And what has now happened is this kind of miraculous process where there are two types of economies, the real economy where people still make things and sell things and a financial economy which trades claims on those real things. I'll give you an example of that. If you buy a share, what is it? If you buy a share in BHP, what is it? It's a stake in a mine. But the problem is, the actual act of trading that claim, doing funky things around that claim, is now far more profitable actually than actually building a mine. (laughs) (laughs) So that changed, and you can measure that in any number of ways. One of which is we look at the size of the banking system relative to the size of the economy. And you find that the actual banking systems in many, many countries are much larger than the actual economy itself. And I'll give you one rather staggering fact. There are these things I used to trade called derivatives, which is basically forms of insurance and price guarantee contracts. The volume outstanding of them currently is between $600 and $700 trillion. I quote, trillion dollars. That means there's 12 zeros at the end of the 700 or 600 And to give you an idea of what the world produces in a year in terms of goods and services, it only actually produces about one-tenth of that. So I've always spent some time thinking about this. I don't know why. It's actually a complete waste of time, but I think about it quite a lot, is that why should we need to trade so much relative to what we produce and consume? And it's one of those mysteries of life which has basically had me classified as a Malthusian Luddite basically. <laughs>
0: By criticizing this stuff.
3: We'll, we'll play- oh, just just questioning asking questions. You, you're not allowed to ask questions, are you?
0: So so plain I mean plainly it's a rhetorical question. We don't need all that financial instruments traded and yet people are getting rich at the expense of the what you could call the, the tangible economy. So would it how far of a stretch is to describe the financial industry metaphorically as a parasitical industry. And what
3: if so, if how it's big a parasite, is the leech? It's not a very clever one. Right. Because a clever parasites actually don't kill the host,
4: keeps the <laughs> host alive.
3: Exactly. And unfortunately, bankers aren't terribly clever. They think they're very clever. They're, they're what I call statistically clever, they're IQ clever, but they lack like a co- little bit of common sense. And so they are perhaps a parasitic industry, as you call it, that they wouldn't see it as such. But certainly, they are so greedy, they're gradually sucking the economy dry. And what is most interesting is they become so important, they are what we call TBTF. If you don't know what TBTF is, let me explain it. It's too big to fail. So every time there's a crisis, the financial institutions, the banks go along And lose money, as they did in 2008. And then, of course, if you think about in a market system in a capitalist society, if you basically do that, you should be allowed to fail, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that the one immutable law law of capitalism? Sounds reasonable. Unfortunately, what happens is the following conversation usually takes place, and uh, you know, you can be uh, pretend to be the treasurer, and I can pretend to be the bank chief executive. I turn up and say, you know, we've made mistakes. Big mistakes. We're really sorry about them, but you know, we make mistakes with other people's money. So we tend to take more risks than we should. And the treasurer looks and you look at me and say tick, tick,
0: that's, that's You've been naughty. a bad naughty. a bad naughty. banker.
3: Bad a, banker. A bad leech. And you should basically go to the wall. And I look at you and say, ah, That's a very courageous decision, Treasurer. Because on Monday morning when people on their way to work put their ATM cards in, trying to get money out, there will be no money. People's pensions and savings will be wiped out. And do you want be the treasurer to basically go down in history as having really destroyed the entire economy? And so eventually, the treasurer also decides that he's playing with other people's money, because after all, I'm playing with other people's money and you're playing with other people's money. So you give me some of the other people's money to make sure I can pay back the other people's money I've lost. And banks are now too big to fail. In fact, the head of the Bank of England said rather prosaically, after he ceased to be the Bank of England governor, by the way, that banks were not only too big to fail, they were too big to jail, and frankly, too big for the people running the banks to understand. i mm-hmm. so sound very happy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: might want to cry. Hi, Das. Can you just tell us how close was the actual global banking system to complete collapse in 2008?
3: Well, I think the best way to think about it is to think about what Ben Bernanke told Congress when he went to Congress asking for all these emergency measures and $700 US dollars. And Congress were pretty sceptical. You know, Congress generally don't like people coming and asking them for lots of money. And Bernanke turned around to them and said, well, you understand, senators and representatives, that if we don't do this, we may not have an economy on Monday. So that was pretty much as close to the brink that I've seen the system get. But to be honest, none of us will know whether, if somebody had called the bluff, whether this system would have collapsed. Because, you know, bankers and policymakers have these wonderful what we call contrafactuals. The contrafactuals basically say, you know, you say, well, actually, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have saved them. And they go, yes, but if we hadn't done that, this would have happened. But because they did it, you can never really test hmm. what actually would have happened. And this actually ha- is happening now because all these policies that are being followed around the world, these bizarre policies of quantitative easing and all sorts of things, are basically done on this contrafactual basis that if we didn't do this, the world would end. Hmm. Except we don't know if the world would end. And there are schools of economics, which are very interesting, the Austrian school of economics, which typically of anything which originates in Vienna is basically full of Biedermeier chairs, dark rooms, and men who are swarthy smoking cigars and have little moustaches sitting around going, (laughs) we should not interfere in the workings of the market." The, the market is self-correcting, and this is just a normal part of natural financial cycles. Now, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it would have ended. Maybe it wouldn't have. Why are you laughing so much? These are very serious matters.
0: <laughs> well, so th- that isn't what happened. Of course, the the banks were bailed out, as you say. Um, what, what has the, has the aftermath of? the GFC being anything like a proper reset? Did we get rid of the problem?
3: Oh, oh, ho, oh, oh, ho, oh, oh. <laughs> You are very naive.
4: Moi, ah, uh, ah,
3: uh, ah. Uh. Uh, George Hegel once said that the only les- lesson of history is that nobody listens to the lessons of history. The best way to think about what 2008 one was, it was the prelude, the overture to the opera. Because what it was telling us was the basic economic model we have, which is debt-based, which is basically pretty much the credit card plan, so we spend everything today and hope to pay off our credit card in the future, doesn't work. It's very dangerous. And at that stage, it was warning us that the system actually has some problems. And we've got another whole series of problems on the side, which is demographics, the fact that we have resource constraints in terms of things like water, food, energy. We have environmental concerns. We have a whole bunch of things like inequality going on. But leave that to one side, let's be myopically financial because actually we don't have an econ- we don't actually have a society anymore, we just have an economy. So basically let's focus on the economy. So at that moment any intelligent adult would have said, "Oh, let's have a think about this." Except we're talking about economists, central bankers, and bankers.
4: So no intelligent adults.
3: Well, you know, I've always been puzzled by this search for extraterrestrial life. I'm looking for it on Earth. I mean, there's no need to look in the universe. If you can find it on Earth, you'd be doing well. Maybe we're looking for it extraterrestrial because we can't find it on Earth. Certainly you won't find it in the banking and the business community very often. Anyway, so at that point in time, we should have done certain things, except we didn't. We covered it up. I have a phrase for this. I call it Botox economics. So basically, we don't have Austrian economics. We don't have monetarist economics. We don't have Keynesian. We have Botox economics. We've pumped the thing full of Botox, which is monetary Botox. And essentially what we did was, it's what Americans in football call a Hail Mary pass. You just pick up the ball and throw it and hope to hell it lands somewhere and somebody scores a try or a touchdown. And they were hoping that growth would come back, inflation would come back, because that's how you manage this debt. Except we've got a problem. Number one, We're not growing quickly enough to manage the debt. And by the way, it's not so much that we need growth. We need the growth for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of which is to solve our debt problems. Because if you grow, your income grows and the debt becomes more manageable over time. We need inflation because basically if prices go up because the debt is a fixed return, you just get back what you lent. That's devalued enormously. So that helps. But none of those things have happened. And during that period, we've actually increased debt. Three triple
0: R. You were on Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R, and we have on the line Das, the famed former banker and now author and commentator on global financial issues. Before we went to the song, Das, you were talking about just how not so good the world has done in cleaning up the mess of 2008.
3: Yeah, and I was talking about the amount of debt that we have. To give you an idea of what happened, debt has gone up globally from $142 trillion to $199 trillion since 2007. And by the way, during this period, we were supposed to be bringing down debt. And one fabulous number has to do with China, which is, as as you know, Australia is a great southern province of China. So basically we have this relationship. China's debt has gone from $2 trillion in 2000 to $7 trillion in 2007 to $28 trillion today. It's one of the most amazing things that's actually happened. So we actually haven't fixed any of the problems. We've got bigger problems than we ever had. But the other interesting thing about that is because we've cut interest rates to, in fact, they're negative in Europe and Japan. Governments have spent a lot of money trying to sort of prop up demand. All of these things are now gonna come home to a roost at some point in time. And this time around, we might have the emerging markets, which is places like Brazil, Russia, India, and China to bail out the global economy. And also the geopolitical risks are much greater. All the problems we're seeing with, around refugees, around the Middle East, around Russia, didn't exist in 2008 to the same degree. So we are actually now at a very, very interesting inflection point, and we'll see this play out over the next, probably, couple of years, which would be very interesting. But uh, I get the feeling this movie's not going to have a very happy ending.
4: Hmm. We were just... Uh, Do
3: you, know, you don't sound very happy. You're sort of manic depressives there. You know, you sort of laugh for half of the time. No, no, no I'm I for pitchforks. Um, pitchforks? You want some pitchforks? Yes, got some. Uh, Do you well, know in the French Revolution, one of the first bunch of people who were executed were the bankers?
4: Oh. The French do it well, don't they? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this is... We, we were just about to ask you if that the next crisis is going to be just another economic blip or do you believe it will be something more significant? I, I think you've answered that. You, you, And you write that the current economic, political and social system is predicated on endless economic expansion and growth. Now, nothing in the history of anything has ever actually grown exponentially, no animal, plant or anything like that. I and mean, even the universe itself will eventually stop growing. Um So what might the end of a growth era look like?
3: Well, I think you're absolutely correct. We live in a finite system, and you can't have infinite growth in a finite system. It's just stupid. I think Edward Abbey, the environmentalist, put it very neatly when he said, growth for growth's sake is the ideology of a cancer cell. And we have that. And look, low growth or no growth itself wouldn't be a problem if we were willing to accept that our living standards would stay much the same. But we have a complete different drive. We want to improve our living standards every year. We want to get richer. And the problem, I've asked myself this question a lot, why do people want to grow? And part of it's living standards, but part of it's actually a very interesting question, which is the issue of redistribution of wealth. And this is within countries and also across nations. One of the things we need growth for is if everything keeps growing and everybody keeps getting richer, you don't actually have to give up anything. You just take less of the growth and you give more to somebody else. But if the world stops growing, then you actually have to deal with this issue of the haves and the have-nots. And as you know, in society, we have the third group, which is the have-not paid for what they have. So we have to reconcile all of those types of interests. And it's really, really hard to do. And the other thing is, we need the growth now to deal with the problem of this debt. And so I I can't see that we're ever going to get off this debt addiction. And this is the fatal tension because we try to manufacture growth. We're going back to where we started our discussion, using things like these funky financial engineering. I'll tell you what central banks are doing now. And this, uh, please don't laugh as I say this. One is they've cut rates to negative numbers. Now, think about it. You put money into a bank and at the end of the year, you get back the money less the interest rate. So you lose money. Mm -hmm. And if you borrow money, they give you a check at the end of the month saying, congratulations, you've borrowed money, you've won. But it's getting even more absurd. In the United States, there was a proposal by some very reputable economists that they were going to take million-dollar bundles and bury them in different parts of the United States and organize a treasure hunt. And the conditions were that if you found the million dollars, the only real condition was you had to spend it immediately. You couldn't save it. And this was a way of them manufacturing demand to get growth going. And Mm. these are intelligent people who are sort of going around doing this sort of stuff. And, you know, I'm very simple. I sort of listen to this stuff and scratch my head going, hmm, interesting, interesting. And it's a sign of the desperation of people who basically have lost control of the system. And there are two things that I always think about. Winston Churchill once said that no matter how beautiful the strategy, occasionally you need to look at the results. And we're not looking at the results of our policies and that they haven't worked. We just believe this thing can be actually made to work. And the most interesting thing is if you spend time around these economic policymakers and central bankers, what really frightens me is the certainty of their beliefs. They're wrong every day. They do this and it doesn't work. But their belief in this is unshakable. And I think it was George Santayana who once said that fanaticism consists of redoubling your efforts when you've lost all sight of the ultimate goal. And that's what they've done.
4: Hmm. Indeed, they have. Um, If we could quickly touch on something quite topical, uh, Das, um, while we've got you. um, There was a huge disruption caused by this week's tax avoidance scandal around the Panamanian law company Mossack Fonseca. I think I've pronounced that wrong. Um... All the current systems are currently built on large corporations avoiding tax. What might happen if they had to pay their fair share? Keeping in mind, I think we saw there was something like $32 trillion unpaid dollars of tax in the last few decades. Could you touch on that briefly?
3: Yes, I'm about 260 kilobytes into the 2.6 ter- terabytes of data. So my knowledge is the graphs that people have put up in front of me. So don't quiz me too hard on this. But let me tell you a fundamental issue is we have this conflict built into our system currently, which is shareholders want companies to minimize tax because if they minimize tax, then there's more left over for them. But the ironic thing is citizens, if the companies pay less tax, then there's no money to actually pay for essential services, social services, and individual taxes go up. And so this is the strange conundrum at the heart of this. And what we have never really reconciled is this conflict, and also what we have, and this whole issue of offshore tax avoidance and the strategies used by multinational is actually a very simple issue, which is we really don't have a particular perspective on what kind of society we want. Because the only country I've ever seen this debate take place in a meaningful way is in some Scandinavian countries, where they decided they wanted to live in a particular way And basically, this is what the tax system needed to be to provide the revenues to meet that. So it was a very logical sort of model, instead of which we want to have this strange system where we don't want to pay any tax. When I first came to Australia, it was quite mysterious to me. There were two things I learned. There were two religions in Australia, and it wasn't the Church of England and the Catholic Church. It was property, and it was avoiding tax. That was Mm. was the two basic things I quickly learned, is that they were really religions in which People worship, And at the same time, they wanted more and more services. They wanted more and more out of the government. And the two aren't reconciled. They, they can never be reconciled. And this is the question. And what you're looking at when you look at this, and this is kind of fun. It's salacious. You know, you get nice names we can have, and particularly a firm with a name like Fonseca. What is it? Moss, Mossack Fonseca? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's out of a John le Carre novel, basically, you know. And when I saw this, I thought somebody's making this up on April 1. It's a tailor of Panama all over again. But basically, it's all interesting. It's that and there'll be nothing out of that because some of this will be innocent. Some of this maybe have some culpability, but they won't be able to trace things through. And the will to actually pursue this is politically different, difficult. And also it's very difficult to do because these companies exist in all sorts of distant locations. And you've got to have cooperation with different governments. So this is all going to be an interesting story which plays out over a couple of weeks but or maybe a couple of months. But the crucial thing is we need to decide what kind of society we want, what we want government to do, and what taxes we need to make it. We never really addressed that issue.
4: It's high time we became a society rather than a business model. It's a quote I heard the other day. Dus, thank you immensely for your time. We are going to have to wrap up at that point.
2: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia.
4: Uh, we will commence to wrap up now, Adam. We were just talking off air about a couple of uh, the things that. Well you just speak
0: <laughs> <laughs> um yeah well that was a that was a little heavy um dust's um interview but very entertaining man uh if you do want to get his book it's called banquet of consequences it's out by penguin and it's at all the good bookshops and if you don't because you heard enough (laughs) and you just want to get to doing stuff which is a great way to get over any um desolation blues uh go to permablitz.net. there's a
4: whole lot of upcoming events this week jed thank you for hitting the buttons in the correct sequence as always kate lovely to see you
2: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm going to run to the hills.
4: Indeedy. <laughs> hey, Adam, what are we going to talk about next week? Uh, we're going to talk with Stephen Pepper. He lives off-grid somewhere in the country, friend of yours? He's a mate of mine, yeah. We're going to talk about the realities of off-grid living. Brilliant. Excellent. Uh, Bushy's been my name. We'll see you next Tuesday. Until then, have all the fun.
0: This has been a podcast from 3 R 102.7 FM in Melbourne.